Welcome to CV Now, your podcast for Houston Methodist Debakey CV education. I'm your host, George Tripsis. As the COVID-19 pandemic has swept around the world, it has become apparent that the novel coronavirus causes much more than a respiratory disease. A substantial number of patients with COVID-19 have experienced cardiovascular complications ranging from acute coronary syndrome to deep vein thrombosis to microvascular injury. At the time in mid-March, when all of these reports were hitting the world's literature about the SARS-CoV-2 virus, particularly in the lungs and, and the very sick people who were in the ICU uh, developing sepsis, developing cytokine release syndrome, we realized that a substantial minority of these patients had cardiac involvement and that there was a very wide spectrum of cardiac involvement. On today's podcast, we're bringing you a panel of cardiovascular experts to delve into how COVID-19 causes cardiovascular disease. Dr. John Cook, chair of the Department of Cardiovascular Sciences at the Houston Methodist Research Institute, is joined by Dr. Leslie Cooper, chair of the cardiovascular department at the Mayo Clinic in Florida, Dr. Martha Gulati, chief of cardiology at the University of Arizona, and Dr. Jeffrey Barnes, cardiologist and vascular medicine specialist at the University of Michigan. They discuss proposed mechanisms for cardiovascular disease and COVID-19, evaluation and management strategies, hypotheses of cardiac injury, and much more. This conversation was recorded on May 11th, 2020. Welcome to DeBakey CV Education. I'm Dr. John Cook. I'm chair of the Department of Cardiovascular Sciences here at Houston Methodist Research Institute. And today at the cutting edge uh, of our, our program today, we are going to be speaking to three experts in cardiovascular medicine who are going to be talking to us about COVID-19 and cardiovascular disease. Uh, first, we'll be speaking Leslie Cooper. Dr. Leslie Cooper is at Mayo Clinic. He's chair of cardiovascular medicine there. And subsequently, we'll be hearing from Dr. Martha Gulati. Dr. Martha Gulati is an expert in women's health at University of Arizona, where she's also the chief of cardiology. And finally, we'll be hearing from Dr. Jeffrey Barnes uh, from the University of Michigan, who's an expert in vascular disease. So COVID-19, as you all know, is a disease that is caused by this virus, uh, SARS-CoV-2. And this uh, virus is, uh, enters into uh, the vascular system, the cardiac system, the, the lungs, the mucous membranes through this spike protein that gives the characteristic crown appearance of, of the virus. And it's becoming clear that in addition to causing respiratory problems, this virus also causes cardiovascular problems. And what you see happening in 2020, and, and particularly in March and April, uh, when the COVID uh, epidemic was hitting New York City, you see a spike in non-COVID-related deaths as well. You see a spike in cardiovascular disease deaths and in uh, deaths due to uh, other causes of pneumonia other than COVID-19. So we're going to talk about that today. We're going to talk about what, what, what does this phenomenon mean? What does it do to? Is COVID-19 causing a dramatic increase in deaths from heart attack and stroke? And uh, to kick off our session, uh, Dr. Leslie Cooper uh, from Mayo Clinic will be talking about his uh, paper, he and his colleagues published this very nice paper in circulation uh, just a couple weeks ago. Uh, this is a preprint 
uh, on the description and proposed management of acute COVID-19 cardiovascular syndrome. So Dr. Cooper, thank you for joining us today and uh, tell us a little bit about uh, the spectrum of uh, cardiovascular disease in COVID-19. John, thank you so much. It's great to be with you here on your show and to be able to share some of the observations that we put together in this uh, really expert opinion paper at the time in mid-March, when all of these reports were hitting the world's literature about the SARS-CoV-2 virus, uh, particularly in the lungs and, and the very sick people who were in the ICU uh, developing sepsis, developing cytokine release syndrome, we realized that a substantial minority of these patients had cardiac involvement and that there was a very wide spectrum of cardiac involvement. And so we uh, sought to put together an opinion uh, piece that really took a deep dive into organizing this literature. Uh, Beacon Bosker, Mark Drasner, and I, with the help of Nick Hendren, really put this together. And at the time, which is now about uh, two to three weeks ago, I think it represented uh, our state of, of knowledge about this particular coronavirus. And you can see in this figure, uh, which comes from the paper, that one of the most dramatic and acute presentations is an acute coronary syndrome often with ST segment elevation illustrated on the left side. That's due in the, uh, sometimes in patients who are older who have underlying and pre-existing coronary artery disease to an acute thrombotic occlusion. That happens certainly in the setting of acute SARS-2 COVID infection. However, there's another group of patients who have a similar presentation with what looks like an acute coronary syndrome, chest pain, often with ST depression or elevation, but on coronary angiography, there is no thrombus. And this is, is remarkable. The report initially from New York described this. Perhaps it's due to microvascular disease, and we'll hear from Jeff Barnes uh, a bit about that. Perhaps it can be due to stress-related cardiomyopathy, and it, sometimes it could be due to, to myocarditis, as you can see in the bottom of the figure on the left there. That's my particular area of interest. We'll talk a little bit about it in a moment. Separate but related can be arrhythmias, atrial or ventricular arrhythmias, which can be made worse in the setting of hypoxia from lung disease, but not just intrinsic lung disease related to the virus, but also thromboembolic disease. This is the virus that causes a hypercoagulable state. You can get venous thromboembolism causing pulmonary emboli and acute right heart failure. And finally, uh, toward the middle, the end of these uh, very sick patients course, you can get a cardiac, uh, depressed cardiac function. Sometimes it's due to demand ischemia in the setting of hypertensive heart disease or, or underlying uh, coronary disease, but it can also be due to myocarditis. And finally, uh, some people get inflammation with a capillary leak syndrome and sometimes inflammation around the pericardium. Not uh, common, but we have seen case reports of tamponade. So that's really the spectrum of acute disease with, with COVID. Some uh, of these patients, most of them are older with underlying comorbidities, but a few of them are quite young and have very little uh, in the way of sepsis or underlying lung disease. So when we thought about the mechanisms of injuries, there was a great paper by Mandy Mera and the New England Journal last week looking at a large multi-center database of the COVID patients showing that pre-existing coronary disease was a major predictor in association with uh, cardiac injury and uh, off-cause mortality. Microvascular injury we touched on with venous thromboembolism, hypoxemia from the intrinsic lung disease. As we move from left to right across the figure, 
all of these contribute to acute myocardial injury in individual patients to a different degree. Let's not forget in the septic syndrome, a cytokine storm that in and of itself can depress myocardial function. And finally, direct myocardial injury by the virus. That could be a viral cardiomyopathy or viral myocarditis. Remarkably, with over 4 million cases now and over 280,000 deaths in the, in the world, we've only seen a handful of true myocarditis cases confirmed by autopsy. We know that it can happen, but it doesn't happen frequently. And the question is why? And is it a kind of myocarditis that we wouldn't typically recognize either by MRI imaging or by biopsy? Cardiac myocytes, and these are very sick myocytes. They are uh, they originally uh, induced from pluripotent stem cells in culture and then infected with uh, the SARS-CoV virus in a, a BSL level four facility. And there you can see multinucleated uh, giant cells. Uh, those are the blue uh, nuclei you see with the red uh, actin. And finally, the SARS-CoV-2 M protein all together. This caused the cells to fuse together into this syncytium. It was highly dysfunctional. And if this happens in vivo, it happens in even to a small number of cardiac myocytes, it could cause substantial proarrhythmic uh, tendencies as well as cardiomyopathy. We don't know yet if this happens uh, in vivo, but we're looking uh, right now at translational studies. And I'd like to uh, now Martha and Jeff to kick in and just uh, talk about uh, their approach to management. John? Yeah, I just had a quick question, Les. Um, back to your, the cardiomyocytes. Uh, do we know, and I think uh, uh, Martha's gonna be touching on this uh, a little bit later. Do we know if um, the uh, cardiomyocytes uh, express the ACE2 receptor, which is the way the virus gets in? Um, do we know if they do? They do, okay, so it's possible. They, they do, and, and I think it's a bit higher in, in, in uh, female than, than male cardiac myocytes. I don't know in vivo if that's true. Mm -hmm. um, the, the biggest issue is really, is, is it really a macrophage or, or fibroblast infection that's driving this? The data, the, the EM studies from Italy, uh, some data from Germany would say that macrophages and uh, fibroblasts to some degree are more uh, likely to be infected than cardiac myocytes. And so um, we can talk about that uh, if you want to at some point. But this is the management slide. And three weeks ago, uh, I'll just walk you through the, first, the left side as we get, as we join together to talk about this. But the first box at the top left is supposed to say, be aware. The first thing you need to think about is in patients who do have uh, an acute infection with SARS-CoV-2, is there cardiac involvement? And if there is a cardiac clinical syndrome, then to investigate it. And to put that investigation in the second box there in the context of the overall patient needs. Is this someone who's in their late 80s, who has uh, different life exp uh, expectancy or goals than somebody in their 30s, for example. And we think that a troponin, and now with point of care ultrasound, would be the early diagnostic test to look for cardiac injury. Any thoughts from the group? Well, I think, you know, it's interesting because as this evolved and we've been learning more Initially, you know, when we were having difficulty protecting all our physicians, we were told, you know, don't, don't do an echo on everyone. Then if you had POCUS, okay, you know, we can do point of care ultrasound if you had it. We didn't have it. So that 
became a big issue for us. And then even about cath, when we were listening to our Chinese colleagues who were teaching us before we even saw a patient, they were suggesting to us to not, you know, that they were using thrombolytics. And of course, when we talked about that, just even as a potential, of course, our, our cath lab uh, team pushed back and said, no way, we're, you know, we're going to take them to the cath lab um, to see. And I think that it's nice to have those, that outline that you showed there about making those decisions, because it certainly helps. I think initially, I would say we were kind of all doing whatever we wanted. I would just add to that. I think um, the idea of having a plan in place and having the team be thoughtful is really critical, whether your volume is low or volume is high. Um, I really like the idea that the troponin is early on in the, um, the pathway. However, we also see that these troponins are elevated in lots of patients, just like other biomarkers, D-dimer and whatnot. So it's really critical that we as the cardiologists are providing uh, reassurance that not every positive troponin means an acute coronary syndrome. And even some of the abnormal EKGs that we see may not necessarily represent that true acute coronary syndrome pattern that we're used to. So it's really important to be thoughtful, uh, to have a good plan in place, and, and to understand the entire clinical picture as you're evaluating these patients. Jeff, I have a question for you then. If, if you see someone with an elevated troponin, then is the next step to get an echo? Transthoracic echo? I think that. Yeah, I think that's a really important element. Taking the, the, the clinical history, the lab data, the vital signs, and then the other studies, the EKG and the echo, I think you can rapidly get all of that information together in order to make an informed decision. Is this a patient that needs to go to the cath lab? Is this somebody for whom we can think about medical management and monitoring? It, it's, it's even more important in this setting not to rely on just one piece of data, but really to get that full package together. Sometimes it's hard though with the if a patient's unstable, like if they're in ventricular tachycardia or V-fib, I mean, then we don't always know, is it myocarditis? Is it, you know, is it coronary disease? And I think these are where the dilemmas have come in place. But I agree that a lot of young people are presenting with it looking like acute MIs on the EKG, and then they're not. Good. Good discussion. Right. Les, did you want to take us down, a little bit farther down that uh, protocol, the algorithm you had? So uh, as we move down the algorithm, uh, we divide into clinically stable and unstable. The people who are going to the unit, uh, you identify early and, and you give them the appropriate level of support. That's, that's really what the middle part of this diagram is about. The bottom left emphasizes that the end of the care is not leaving the unit. You do need to follow up try and if you are uncertain of the cause of myocardial dysfunction, don't leave it, but go on maybe to get an MRI when they're stable. The imaging findings can continue into that recovery period. And finally, in the outpatient setting, we don't know yet whether there's going to be a long-term implication to COVID myocarditis or not. And so it is important at the setting to give people a, a long-term follow-up that includes at least a clinical assessment, if not an echo. Then on the right side of the diagram, we talk about cardiogenic shock and the importance of distinguishing vasoplegic shock from cardiac uh, uh, dysfunction and that those are not always easy to distinguish and they often can coexist. So uh, not to um, overemphasize that, but if you are uncertain, go with a PA catheter at the bedside. Uh, to, and um, finally, um, 
have a upfront discussion about the need for mechanical support. When is uh, ECMO indicated? Thank you, Les. Uh, as I mentioned before, Dr. Galati is chief of cardiology at University of Arizona, and she's going to give us her take on COVID-related cardiovascular disease. Martha. So, I mean, the, the cardiac injury, you know, there, there's a lot of different hypotheses. Of course, there's the ACE2 mediated direct damage that they, we think could be going on. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit more about that. But we also know in these patients, there's the, what we call the happy hypoxics or the, you know, where they're running with very low O2 saturation. And there's probably myocardial injury occurring as a result of that as well resulting in oxidative stress, intercellular acidosis, and mitochondrial damage. There's also microvascular damage that can be occurring here, and we'll hear a little bit more about that from Jeff. But there are perfusion defects and vessel hyperpermeability and even vasospasm may be occurring, in addition to the whole cytokine storm or the inflammatory response that is going on. And all of this together or even separately could be causing acute cardiac injury. And I think we'll, we'll find out a lot more as, as time goes on, but all of these have been hypothesized as potential pathways for heart injury. This is just a nice figure that the New England Journal of Medicine put out kind of describing the sort of differences in whether, you know, ACE2 levels are good or bad and whether ACE inhibitors and ARBs are good or bad in these particular patients. We know, as, as you already heard from John, the ACE2 receptor is the way that the COVID-19 enters into a cell. So that the ACE2 levels we know are uh, important from that point, but and there's a question because ACE inhibitors and ARBs upregulate ACE2, then the question was, is there a danger in people taking these medications? But at the same point, ACE inhibitors and ARBs also uh, reduce that pathway over to the right um, in terms of the damage that can occur through the angiotensin II type 1 receptor that ultimately can cause acute lung injury, adverse myocardial remodeling, vasoconstriction, and vascular permeability. So, you know, they were trying to, in this article, really nicely lay out what do we actually know? Is it dangerous? Are ACE inhibitors and ARBs dangerous or not dangerous um, because of the the ACE2 receptors. And there had been a lot of early on information contradictory from one society to another saying, take your ACE inhibitors and ARBs and other people saying, no, it's not safe. And of course, we got a lot of calls from a lot of patients saying, should I stop everything? And I think that, that then there was a nice statement um, both through the ESC and the American College of Cardiology and the American Heart Association saying, keep on these drugs. And if you go to the next slide, I believe that this really, this was a study that just came out yesterday, but, and published in the European Heart Journal, but what they, these were heart failure patients, and what they, they looked at them, uh, the people on ACE inhibitors and ARBs, and looked at ACE2 levels, and found that there was actually no difference in the ACE2 levels, and they validated in another cohort of patients as well, and that's what the figure two to the side was showing. Ultimately, what they found is being on an ACE inhibitor or an ARB didn't increase your ACE2 plasma levels. Um, certainly ACE2 levels were higher in male, and I'm going to talk a little bit about the sex differences, but if, oh, if, well, okay, um, but 
what they showed in that, that study is that um, first that plasma ACE2 levels, you know, weren't changed by these medications and making those medications at least from that data suggesting that there isn't a reason to stop them. Now they did talk in that paper that, you know, of course that's plasma ACE2 levels and, and that may be different than um, in the tissue. And we don't, you know, measuring it in the tissue may be a, a different story and we need more information about that. But I think the ACE2 difference in men and women is certainly something interesting. And I just wanted the chance to highlight it because again, it, there, there is a sex difference actually in COVID-19. I think everyone's seeing this. I think today um, the you know, CDC was talking about it on television too, how less women have died from COVID-19 and less women have actually gotten infected. And there, there's a lot of different things going on here and not that we know all of them, but you know, the X chromosome actually holds a lot of our immune response genes. And women, of course, we're lucky. We have two X chromosomes compared with men. And so, and we've seen this in the past, actually, if you look at HIV and hepatitis C, women actually have stronger immune reactions. But overall, there's probably other diseases as well, but you know, women are highly understudied. So we don't always know all the sex differences, but we know sex hormones have a role in modulation our immune response. And this X chromosome has the high density of immune-related genes. And women generally mount these stronger innate and adaptive immune responses than men. And this results in a faster clearance of pathogens and a greater vaccine efficacy in women compared to men, but also contributes to their vulnerability in other diseases, things like inflammatory diseases and autoimmune diseases. But We've been, you know, we have some animal studies, some mouse models showing that the um, in SARS, not not this infection, but SARS, which is very has a similar makeup to COVID nineteen, is that the male mice were actually more susceptible than female mice to SARS infection, and again, the, there was differences that they saw in terms of organ involvement, and when they did a gonadinectomy on uh, male mice, it didn't really affect the disease outcome. But if you did an oophorectomy on these female mice, um, they actually were more susceptible and more likely to die from the SARS infection. So I think that, you know, understanding these sex differences will help us actually potentially identify treatments um, and, and potentially tell us the different ways that, you know, different ways that we need to go about it. Now, I will say that we don't know, again, plasma ACE levels may be different than tissue ACE levels. And I think that's one thing we really need to see, even from a cardiac involvement, but any organ involvement to tease out what's actually happening in the organs. Um, Martha, um, you met, you talked about the ACE2 receptor. So this is a, a receptor uh, on our cells and, and on many of our cells that uh, is involved in um, an important physiologic process, uh, turning angiotensinogen into angiotensin 1. And that also is apparently uh, a receptor for the virus. The virus has found a way to use that that receptor, that ACE2 receptor, to get into the cell uh, through its spike protein. Um, you mentioned that there's some evidence that there might be differences between men and women in, in the ACE2 receptor. Uh, 
how strong is that evidence? That's very strong. I mean, we, we have the we have a lot of data that ACE2 receptor is higher in men overall. And even in that, that paper that was just published, you know, again, those were heart failure patients, but they confirmed that too, that just that there was a higher ACE2 level in the men in, that they were studying compared to women. So if there's a higher ACE2 receptor on tissues in men, then they're more likely to be infected, I guess. Is that, is that what you're saying? That's what it seems. I mean, this again is plasma level. So I think tissue level, we also need to know a little bit more, but that's what it seems. If there's more ACE2, there's more, more ability for this virus to enter into the cells. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. You know, I will, will mention one thing um, related, Martha. There was a really nice paper a couple weeks ago in Lancet uh, by Frank Ruchitska, uh, who's a professor at the University of Geneva. He uh, showed in that paper on, on, at autopsy that um, virus is getting into the endothelium. And uh, he postulated that uh, viral invasion of the endothelium, which is the lining of our blood vessels, might be causing a lot of the problems that we're seeing in uh, our COVID-19 patients with uh, venous thrombosis, arterial thrombosis, et cetera. What do you think about that? I think, again, the vasculature does carry ACE, ACE2 receptors, so it is very likely um, the endothelium would be a great and easy entry point, both from a cardiovascular point, but also from a lung standpoint as well. So mm -hmm. I think that that's, that I saw that paper, I, and I think that that is one of, you know, everyone's trying to figure out where, you know, what, what's the what's going on, but the entry point seems pretty clear. I mean, those crowns, like you said, are the place that cat latch on to the ACE2 receptor and, and make their way in, so. Fascinating. You know, I wonder, you know, it, 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 once the virus is inside and it's hijacked the cell's machinery, uh, what it does to the mitochondria. If you've got uh, more of mitochondrial dysfunction in men because of the hormonal milieu and the, uh, as opposed to women, in this setting that could give you a higher degree of myocyte dysfunction. Um, that's been shown in, in myocarditis in, in some models. Well, I think uh, we'll move on then to Dr. Jeff Barnes from University of Michigan, who's gonna be talking about another cardiovascular problem that we're seeing in our patients with COVID-19, and that is uh, the venous thromboembolism, uh, deep venous thrombosis, pulmonary embolism, and also a microvascular thrombosis. So Jeff, tell us about that. Yeah, thank you so much for, for having me. And I think um, what we've heard so far has really set the stage for this. We can go to the, the next slide. You know, these ACE2 receptors are found in so many different organs, including uh, the endothelium. And I think it helps to explain some of what we're seeing. Some of what I'm presenting here comes from a multinational uh, sort of collaboration of experts across the world trying to address uh, anti-thrombotic therapy and thrombotic risk in COVID. And I want to give a shout out to the two uh, lead authors, Dr. Bigdelli and Dr. Medvaven, uh, who, who led this effort out in New York, and it was really uh, worthwhile. I encourage you to check it out in Jack. When we think about venous thromboembolism, we tend to think about clots in the large veins of the legs and then embolizing to the lung. But one of the interesting things we're seeing in COVID-19 with at least some early reports is that there may also be a uh, thrombus in situ process, especially a microthrombi process 
uh, similar to what you've been hearing from uh, the last two speakers. Uh, here is a, uh, a past specimen, a gross past specimen on the left, showing with the arrows some microthrombi in different areas of the lung tissue. And then on slides, uh, you can actually see the microthrombi in the small vessels on the right. So raising this question about endothelial dysfunction and perhaps thrombus in situ uh, being a contributor to some of the disease that we're seeing, at least from a lung and a blood vessel standpoint. When we think about venous thrombosis and we think about it in the setting of COVID, uh, there's a gradation of risk. And that gradation of risk seems to correlate with the severity of the COVID-19 infection. Many people we believe uh, may be asymptomatic, but perhaps infected or have a mild case of COVID-19. But it's when you get to that orange and the red at the top of the screen where you're getting the moderate to severe forms of the disease, that's where patients seem to be having this high risk of venous thrombosis. And it's probably because it's this perfect uh, setup for thrombosis. Think back to Verkhaus triad, when you have stasis of blood flow, when you have hypercoagulability, and when you have some sort of vessel wall injury, that's the, the perfect setup for a thrombosis. These moderately severe or critically ill patients are often immobilized when they're intubated. Uh, these are patients for whom uh, there may be some endothelial dysfunction due to the uh, direct action of the virus, as we've been talking about with that ACE2 receptor on the endothelium. And then, of course, these are patients who get this overwhelming inflammatory response, the cytokine storm that makes them hypercoagulable. And so you can see all of that coming together and really creating uh, um, a setup for thrombosis. Let's go to the next slide, and we can uh, explore that a little more. There are a number of risk factors that these patients have. Now, any patient who's critically ill in the hospital is at risk for venous thrombosis, and certainly any patient who's critically ill with an infection or a pulmonary infection is at high risk, but there seem to be some extra elements that may be playing in, and some of our early reports suggest that the venous thromboembolism risk is at least as high and possibly or probably even higher than that that we are seeing in other non-COVID uh, uh, severe infections. Uh, you can see there may be genetic components, there's dehydration, there's sepsis, there's underlying diseases. These are patients who often have chronic kidney disease, have uh, lung disease, other cardiac conditions that put them at risk, not just for COVID-19 complications, but also for venous thrombosis. You can see on the bottom left some proposed mechanisms and especially the inflammatory response. We see a number of different markers that are quite elevated and elevated for long periods of time in these patients, probably representing that inflammatory response, making these patients hypercoagulable. And so in the middle, we see the microthrombi in the lungs. We're clearly seeing some coagulopathy. It's not a pure DIC picture, but it's something similar. We see myocardial injury, we see the elevated biomarkers, and in particular, the D-dimer seems to be quite elevated. And that results in a number of outcomes, venous thromboembolism, myocardial infarction, and again, this DIC, or I, I've heard it re referred to as like a, a sepsis intravascular coagulation or even a COVID intravascular coagulation uh, process, uh, process. So it's something that's uh, a little bit unique, but certainly concerning. One of the big questions, of course, is if these rates of thromboembolism are so high, how do we prevent them? And I think one of the, the keys is good use of prophylactic anticoagulation is absolutely necessary, and we have good evidence. This is a paper that just came out last week, and Jack, 
uh, out of New York saying, what about using therapeutic or treatment doses of anticoagulation and could that be beneficial? And what you see in the two graphs on the middle of the screen is that the patients who received treatment dose anticoagulation in the blue line seem to have better survival, whether it's all patients admitted to the hospital, uh, which is column A, or if you just limit to the patients who got mechanical ventilation in figure B, they seemed to do much better. And so the main conclusion was that there was a reduced mortality associated with treatment dose anticoagulation, but they also noted a higher risk of intubation. And I think it's really important that clinicians not draw too strong a conclusion out of this. These are observational data where there's significant concern about unmeasured confounding and selection bias. The patients who don't get anticoagulated yet are critically ill probably have a reason to not get anticoagulated. That may also be a reason that contributes to death. And so there's certainly concerns we have about over-interpreting this data. It also comes from a single center. However, I think it very strongly justifies the need to study this question. What types of uh, prophylactic anticoagulation are needed to prevent these venous thromboembolism events, whether they be large venous thromboembolism events like we traditionally see, or it's the smaller microthrombi that we're seeing. I know of at least two different randomized trials that are in the process uh, of um, getting started or are already undergoing right now. And I think this is going to be critical information we're going to learn here uh, in, in the coming weeks to months to help us guide therapy in, in the future. Thank you, Jeff. That was great. Um, any discussion from the panel? Yeah, Jeff, I, I don't know if you remember seeing when the, the when China was sharing their information with the ACC and they, they showed that nice slide of, you know, when a certain, I can't even remember the cutoff though, but the, when the D-dimer was elevated and they did use anticoagulation and it was just observational as well. They didn't tell us what they used or anything, but um, there was, Definitely with a D-dimer cutoff, there's people that did better, but then without elevated D-dimer, they actually saw a lot more bleeding complications is what I remember them showing us. And so are, is it, is your, in your, in your practice right now, were you anticoagulating everyone or were you using like all those risk things, that, the risk markers that you listed as well as if they're, you know, they're intubated, was that enough? What was it that you used to decide I'm gonna start anticoagulation? Yeah, I think it's a really good question. And we know yeah. that D-dimer is a risk factor for venous thromboembolism. Yet we also know that it is a non-specific biomarker and it's elevated in lots of different situations. And so it's certainly concerning. And, and I've seen some of the highest D-dimer levels I've ever seen in our patients with COVID-19. So it certainly raises concern. We don't, however, have good data to tell us that using the D-dimer alone to guide uh, therapy uh, is efficacious. And so it's, for me, a part of the, the general picture uh, in how I'm making a decision. Our institution decided that we were gonna be somewhat regimented. Every patient with COVID-19 must get venous thromboembolism prophylaxis in the hospital, uh, no questions asked. And we tried to use methods that would minimize the number of nurse to patient interactions because we wanted to minimize that exposure risk. So we really tried to encourage use of 
low molecular weight heparin once a day or perhaps twice a day in our obese patients. Once patients became critically ill and transitioned into the ICU, we often increased that so that they were getting twice a day uh, uh, low molecular weight heparin prophylaxis. We actually have some data from the uh, H1N1 influenza epidemic where we found similar high rates of thrombosis in those patients who were critically ill. And we were using a low dose infusion of heparin. And so that's an, a strategy that was employed in some of our ICUs. Um, but we wouldn't necessarily jump to treatment doses of anticoagulation unless we thought we were empirically or objectively treating a venous thrombomblism case. So we were not quite as aggressive at the University of Michigan as they were at some centers in, um, in, in New York. I think it's an important uh, question to study, um, but we also recognize that higher doses of anticoagulation also increase the risk of bleeding, and we were really trying to balance that carefully. Jeff, what about, let me ask you a question about um, the ambulatory patient. Someone that is COVID-19 positive uh, and they have risk factors for venous thromboembolism. Maybe they've had a previous VTE. Maybe they're obese. Um, maybe they have venous varicosities. What, what, when, when would you put someone on an outpatient basis, or would you, on, on prophylaxis? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And frankly, it's a question I'm getting at an increasing uh, rate. And I, I really do not know the answer to that. We do not have evidence to tell us that prophylaxis in the outpatient setting, um, irrespective of the COVID-19 status, is beneficial and that the benefits outweigh the harms, unless you're somebody who has a very high prothrombotic state or you're somebody who's previously had venous thrombosis. So I'm using this opportunity in those patients to reassess, should they have been on secondary venous thromboembolism prophylaxis anyway? If somebody had an unprovoked clot a while back and they continue to have some risk factors, it may be worth having that conversation to say, you know, in today's day and age, we have new drugs with lower bleeding profiles that maybe being on something prophylactic is beneficial. Mm -hmm. But I am not starting people only because of COVID uh, on an outpatient prophylactic basis. Um, I actually think we need to learn a lot more about the VTE risk in the outpatient setting. We just don't have data yet. You're a vascular doc. Uh, there's another vascular condition that's been reported, the so-called COVID toes. Um, I mean, compared to the cardiovascular uh, events that we're talking about, it, it's you know not that important, but it might be reflecting a microvascular derangement that's that's causing the other problems as well. Um, this these COVID toes, this erythematous appearing uh, lesion in uh, people's uh, fingers and toes. What do you make of that? What, what's going on there? And how does that relate to the cardiovascular events that we're seeing uh, in the larger circulation? Yeah, it's a really good question. And it is definitely something that is being seen. I personally haven't seen a case of it myself, uh, perhaps because all of my uh, visits with patients are video visits and they can't quite get down there to show me those uh, <laughs> images of their toes. But I am definitely hearing a lot about it. My colleagues in New York have told me they've seen quite a number of cases. I do think it represents some combination of either microthrombi or inflammation. 
And what's interesting is it's not just in patients who we know have or had a case of COVID-19, but we're also seeing it in people who didn't know that they had COVID-19 before. It may be a marker in some of our younger patients who had a subclinical course that didn't end up in the hospital who then come in with these, these really painful or, or just red lesions on their toes. It's usually a benign course. It runs its, it runs its course. Uh, they don't have risk for losing their toes or their fingers, uh, but it may be a marker of just how widespread this virus has been. And we haven't necessarily picked it up because not everyone is in the hospital. It looks like uh, something we've seen. Leslie, you were in, in Mayo Clinic with me at one point, and we would see pernio occasionally, right? The, this uh, lesion that occurs in people that had frostbite. It looks very similar to pernio, doesn't it? Yeah, you need to do the exam. I looked at that. I saw the, 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 uh, when that paper came across on, on the COVID toes, and my first thought was, is it you know, venous congestion or is it, is it an arterial small vessel process? Mm -hmm. And, you know, it would take any one of us, you know, three seconds with a patient to figure it out. But when you're, it's hard to tell from a manuscript. Yeah. So I'm not sure, but you're absolutely right. So if, if it was um, a, vaso, a problem of vasoreactivity, um, which is highly unreasonable because this is an endothelial uh, cardiotropic uh, virus, uh, it, it certainly could, could look like perineal. Yeah. And we'd give it Cardura and it would get better. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Jeff, would you anticoagulate for COVID toes? That's a, that's a really good question. I don't think I would go there right now. I, again, I think I would try and deal with the vasoreactivity um, and provide reassurance. Uh, but again, I would use it as an opportunity to reassess, did this person have some other reason that really they should have been anticoagulated? Mm -hmm. But I wouldn't anticoagulate them just for the COVID toes uh, in and of itself. You know, Les's suggestion was a good one. Les, your suggestion was a good one uh, using a calcium channel blocker because that, that does work with perineal. That we, I, m I mentioned Mayo Clinic only because anyone, anyone that's had a tour of duty at Mayo Clinic has seen perineal because it gets so cold there in Minnesota. We do see the patients with uh, frostbite. Um, so maybe antiplatelet therapy as well, potentially. Yeah, you know, I've had a lot of people ask about that. Is there a role for aspirin? You know, should people take it? And, and I know, in fact, there was even some suggestion, I believe, from Anthony Fauci at one point saying that perhaps we should think about uh, aspirin in our young uh, folks uh, who are at risk for strokes, right? We're seeing some young people with stroke that may be uh, COVID-related. And again, I think it's, it's an interesting question. I, I always uh, am a little concerned to get too far out in front of the data. Um, we know that aspirin is not completely benign. There is some risk associated with it. But, you know, if you're somebody who's relatively low risk for bleeding, it may be a reasonable strategy to use for a short period of time. It certainly has evidence in reducing venous thromboembolism events. We know that it has about a 30% relative risk reduction in recurrence after a VTE event. It obviously has uh, uh, beneficial effects in arterial disease like MI, peripheral artery disease, and stroke. So there may be a role for that. Um, I would be careful about recommending it broadly, but on a case-by-case -case basis, it could be considered. Um, well, I did have another question for all of you, and, and there's another uh, condition. Uh, Jeff, you mentioned the dis disorders that we're seeing in young people with uh, COVID-19. Um, what about this Kawasaki syndrome that's occurring? Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what, what is Kawasaki syndrome and uh, why is it occurring in young people with COVID-19? 
Yeah, it, it's a really good question. And and what we're seeing with these young people, and I, and I caution, these are some early reports uh, that we're, we're just learning about, is there seems to be a inflammatory response that these young children are coming into the hospital with. Now, I'm an adult doc. I, I'm not a, a pediatrician. And uh, and so I'm listening to my pediatric colleagues tell me about this, and they're really concerned that there there could be this overwhelming inflammatory reaction that appears similar to Kawasaki's disease. Again, another disease of inflammation that affects the blood vessels. One of the manifestations we often see are aneurysms because of, in, or we think because of inflammation of the blood vessels. We do not know whether that's going to be the same thing in these, these young patients with COVID-19 or not, but it's certainly something that we have an increased or heightened awareness for because of the similar patterns with Kawasaki's disease. So it's something to, to be vigilant about. And I think especially as more states open up and we start to get more interaction between children, if that risk of COVID-19 or the risk of the coronavirus spreading may not necessarily manifest in a COVID-19 picture that we're used to seeing, might we start to see some of these other manifestations? We just don't know, but we need to be vigilant and careful uh, in watching for these. Thank you, Josh. The uh, treatment of Kawasaki's disease is, is to treat the anti-inflammatory, uh, treat the process with anti-inflammatories, but that could potentially be dangerous with a viral infection. Do we, do we have any thoughts about that? Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's a good question. And in fact, to me, it reflects some of the early questions I heard about just general COVID-19. Uh -huh. If there is this overwhelming inflammatory response, are these patients who should be getting steroids and other sorts of immunomodulators? And of course, you're always balancing keeping the inflammatory response from getting out of control with also making sure that you can control the viral infection. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so uh, I, I don't know where, where we're going. I'd be curious to know, you know, Leslie or, or Martha, what, what you guys have done or what you've been reading. Um, but um, there, you, I think you always have to be careful about giving too much anti-inflammatory when you know that there's an infectious underlying process. There's several, you know, anti-IL-6 and anti-IL-1 trials ongoing right now, um, three of them at least at Mayo, and so as well as, you know, there are multi-center studies here and in Europe, and we don't have the data yet. So I think that when you're in that uh, moderate to severe ill category, you know, past the hypoxia phase, then I think it's, it's a really valid question. I think when you move, and the kids, I don't, I'm also not a pediatrician. I saw the report from the UK and, and other ones, but I couldn't really, you know, I, I, I couldn't really comment intelligently on that. But what I'd say is that we need the trial data because, uh, as you said, as you point out, John, uh, other other trials of anti-inflammatory therapy where there was a lot of good preclinical data turned out to be negative, and and we get, we we need to just be rigorous and you know for now try and enroll everybody you can in a trial, so we get data. Well, we're coming to the close of our program. Thank you, Jeff. I'd, I'd like to hear from each of you. Had, we had a little chance to talk uh, before the program started today about how each of your institutions is dealing with uh, COVID-19 generally. And um, I thought that was very interesting. A lot of similarities, uh, but some differences. And, and maybe we can start with you, Jeff. Just think uh, uh, back about the last uh, month. What's it been like at the University of Michigan? Yeah, it's, it's really been fascinating. Our entire delivery of healthcare has been transformed. We essentially shut down all um, uh, elective uh, operations. We stood up 
two new ICUs uh, to just prepare for the surge. And we did get a surge. We, we ended up with just shy of about 250 patients in our hospital with COVID at, at, at one point. We have uh, to date discharged uh, more than 450 patients with COVID and we still have quite a number. Um, it has been uh, a very interesting experience. We've had a number of patients come in and require long courses of oxygen therapy, supportive therapy, uh, and just do you know floor level care, general care. But then we've also had the patients who just dramatically worsen, end up in the ICU and have these really prolonged courses. And um, it has it has really changed the way we are approaching healthcare from an inpatient standpoint, certainly as it's affected our outpatient uh, delivery. Uh, docs like myself, who are cardiologists, were pulled in to help with the COVID care and, and gen med service. And it was an honor to get to do that, but certainly uh, um, uh, pushed us out of our comfort zone a little bit. And now we're figuring out how to rebuild and how to, how to get to a new normal. And so mm-hmm. um, I'm gonna be very curious to see what healthcare is gonna look like in the coming six months, because it's changed dramatically from where it was six months ago. And COVID has really been a catalyst for that. Thanks, Jeff. Martha, how about you at University of Arizona? You're directing the cardiology program there. What, what surprises were there for you? Well, the biggest surprise is we didn't get hit as hard, fortunately, as a lot of the other places. And, you know, it's funny how all three of us are from different geographical areas. I think the you know, the thing that really was shocking for me was just how the hospital almost came to a halt. And I think I think uh, Jeff was is really right. We are watching our healthcare system that had been practicing. You know, we all probably complained about this at some point in our lives. We're still practicing medicine like the 1800s. And look what happened. I, and not that we should, you know, not that COVID-19 is good, but the good that we can find is that we found our healthcare system can change. It took a big push, but it can change. It's changed how we delivered care. Outpatient has dramatically changed. I, I think I saw one patient in the last month in person in my clinical setting, and I almost was excited by it because it's very different. Learning how to use telehealth has really changed our 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 interaction, the thing that we love is being with patients. And then you're, you're talking to maybe their computer doesn't work. And so all you're getting is their voice, but everything, you know, worrying, convincing patients, even thinking that they're having a heart attack, they're telling you on the phone that they're having symptoms that you clearly know is unstable angina and you're begging them to come into the emergency room because they're scared to come into the hospital. Mm-hmm. So we, we have a long way to go. I, I, nothing's like, nothing's going to be normal for a while. We've been really fortunate, though, in Arizona. I think that we shut down early and we're shut down long. And we're probably opening this Friday if everything goes well. But, um, you know, we, we've got a lot to think about and a lot to learn um, for our future. I don't think this is the last uh, pandemic we're going to mm-hmm. face. And we're not, you know, I, I just read something before we got on this call that maybe the, the states that open too soon are already seeing um, increases. So I don't know now if we're already entering the phase two as well. That's a nice segue to lastly, because beaches are open in Florida now, it's my understanding. Are you are. concerned about a bump and, uh, or another peak in cases? Yeah, people have displaced the, the, the seagulls. The beaches are full. And now the, uh, there is a concern about a, a second wave later in the fall. But I'd say the, what I would add to what Martha and Jeff 
said, I would agree with everything you said. And I'd add the use of effective personal protective equipment has been transformative between uh, masks uh, and the consequences of not using that effectively and not screening patients effectively because one infected inpatient can uh, touch 50 or 100 uh, healthcare workers in the course of a few days or, or a couple of weeks. And that can lead to numerous people being out on furlough or you know on, on uh, quarantine, excuse me. And that means um, uh, huge impacts to your workforce. So you need to uh, change practice rapidly. Uh, as I, Martha, like, like you, a, a year ago, we might have done five telephone, uh, video visits a month. Now we do 2,000 a week uh, at our site, more than that. It's, it's completely transformed the way we, we manage and follow patients uh, to minimize risk of, of virus exposure. So I think that's going to, and I think that's a good thing in some ways, that we are going to find niches for uh, virtual care where it's better, it's more effective for people, it's more uh, efficient than we ever had before in this new model. So there's good, there's good that'll come out of it, but we're not going back in the next year to, to what we used to do. There's some good that's come out of this, right? I mean, I think you all spoke to that issue. Uh, the medical practice is changing, has changed dramatically in response to the pandemic. You know, the other thing that, that I've seen that, that's been fascinating is how the medical and scientific communities have pulled together around the world, sharing information virtually uh, immediately. And uh, I mean, we saw that today on this program. Um, Les and, and Jeff, you shared with us two papers that wouldn't even be in, in published yet. I mean, they're, they're, they're in preprint form, and, and you, you've given that information to us today. You know, it's just amazing how rapidly we're learning and how we're sharing uh, information. It's just uh, incredible. You know, the, uh, uh, one of the areas that we're working in is, is making a vaccine, and it was incredible, the, the, the developments in the vaccine world, which we'll talk about this program another time, but just the sequence uh, of the coronavirus in January was released to the world. And within 42 days, an RNA vaccine was made. It's incredible the, the light speed uh, rate at which uh, therapies are being developed because of the communication and the technology. This question is about ferritin levels. And uh, the, the, the uh, question is, is there any relationship between high ferritin levels and cardiac injury? Oh, well, I don't know. It would be my answer, but I don't know if any of my other colleagues actually could answer this better than me. Yes. <laughs> Good. Yeah, the, the early studies, you know, ferrins, it's a gradation, but more than 1,000, more than 800 were associated in the early Chinese studies with, um, with higher risk of, of adverse outcomes. Okay. And, and uh, does, is it related to my, my viral myocarditis, or is it something else that's... that's uh, that's uh, the relationship that causes this relationship between high ferritin levels and cardiac injury. What is it? Wh what is the mechanism there? Why is high ferritin levels causing cardiac injury? Uh, well, I have to be vague. I think it's an acute phase reactant, and you're getting a, a systemic. I think that you get high CRP, you're getting um, high ferritins, and it's a it's a it's a response to the systemic inflammatory milieu. Okay. All right. Okay. Thank you for that, Les. All right. Well, thank you all for joining us today. So it was great to see you all. Martha, nice to see you again. Leslie, uh, we worked together a long time ago. It's nice to see you again, work together again. Jeff, thank you for your comments. Really insightful. Really appreciate having you guys on board. Be safe, stay well. Take care.
Thank you very much. Take care. Well, that's our show for today, and thank you for listening. If you have anything you'd like to share or discuss about cardiovascular disease and COVID-19, please send us a tweet at using hashtag CVNow. And don't forget to tag us at DeBakeyCVEDU. If you like the show, please show us the support by subscribing and leaving us a review. You can find more digital cardiovascular education opportunities through DeBakey CV Education by following us on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter.